welcome to episode six of the Throws Genius podcast. I am Janine Kistner. So today, as I'm recording this, this is February 5th, 2020, and today is National Girls and Women in Sports Day. And I've been seeing a lot of posts come across my social media feeds all day, and I, I want to feel excited about the day, but my, my feelings about today and sports are, are complex. So if I like just put my head down and engaged and engaged in a little bit of like navel gazing, I'd probably be pretty happy thinking about this day. Um, sport has had a huge impact on my life and the cultural shift in our country towards inclusion that I've benefited from throughout my lifetime has had an impact on me both personally and professionally. I've had so many opportunities that my mom and her peers just didn't have. I mean, I I think about how through school, it wasn't a second thought to me that I'd have the opportunity to play sports in school. Like I never even, I never gave it a second thought. I just, I knew I'd be able to, if I'd wanted to go for the basketball team or volleyball or, you know, like I did track, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't have to fight to have those opportunities. And I've grown so much as a person through my experiences as an athlete and also had opportunities professionally as a coach that if not for the battles that the generations before me fought, I, I never would have had those opportunities. And I see, you know, women of my generation and the women that have even followed me you know, we, we're experiencing greater, greater opportunity to pursue our ambitions, to have the freedom to be the full people that we want to want to be in, you know, in a lot of ways, we believe that we can, you know, become whatever we want to become. So my, my personal experience is reflected, you know, across our country in large part, specifically to the impact of Title IX. So, um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners know that sports participation numbers for women and girls have dramatically increased since Title IX went into effect, but there are still hurdles to clear. And I'm calling them hurdles and not obstacles intentionally because these challenges are not insurmountable, but they are certainly slowing us down in the worthy pursuit of equality. So one of the types of gender inequality that we still see in sports today is particularly in the historically and, and currently, to a large extent, male-dominated domains like football and wrestling, for example. So um, what I remember in middle school, we got to – we had a certain number of options, you know, through the year for what sports we wanted to learn or what games we wanted to play. And for one module, um, I picked wrestling, and I had to convince one of my female friends, one of my girlfriends, to go along with me and take it so that I would have – someone to wrestle because they wouldn't let the girls wrestle the boys or vice versa in the PE class. So I got to learn how to wrestle in PE class in middle school. And I, and I had so much fun with it probably because I dramatically outweighed my friend, even then before I ever started throwing, you know, I was, I was not that big, but I was bigger than her. And so that, that feeling of success, you know, I, I, I really wanted to go out for the team, but there was only a boys team. And so there weren't signups in the girls locker room like there were for all the other girls teams. So, um, I was still able to like allowed to go out for the team, but 
because I was a girl wanting to do a boy sport, I had to meet some physical qualifying standards, which incidentally the boys didn't have to meet because there was this implicit just assumption that a boy would be fit enough for it, but I wouldn't be, even though I had been a pretty high level competitive Highland dancer for a long time. Anyway, so, but I had to meet those standards before they would let a girl, you know, go out for the team. So I, and I actually, I found out just a couple of years ago from my parents that one of the coaches had even called my house, spoken to my mom on the phone and had tried to convince her to stop me from trying out for the team. And I'm glad that I'm, I'm actually really glad that I didn't know that growing up because I think that that would have been, um, that much harder for me to know that these adults that I looked up to as teachers did not see me the way that I saw myself. So, um, ultimately like I've never really liked running distance and I think I had to run a mile in a certain time or something to be able to try out for the team. And, and those, um, those barriers, those, those things that I had to clear, those hurdles I had to clear, um, ended up being enough to stop me from ultimately going out for the team. So, Given my experiences as a preteen, it's encouraging to see now that wrestling is growing. So, for example, there are more and more scholastic um, opportunities for girls to wrestle. And women's wrestling was actually, I mean, this is very recent, was just named an emerging sport by the NCAA on the Division Two and Division Three levels on January 25th, 2020. Like we're talking about just a couple weeks ago. And even in football, it's no longer unheard of to have a girl on a middle school or a high school team. Um, and so I looked up some stats on this in the in the National Federation of State High School Associations. I think it's the NFHS, I think, um, in their 2018-19 participation survey, about 12 percent of the schools that had a, a typical the 11 player football team had girls playing on the team. Um, but with the numbers of girl girls playing, not just looking at the number of teams, but the numbers of girls, that only breaks down to about two girls per team, with girls making up less than a quarter of 1% of all 11-player football teams participants. So, you know, that, be as it may, change is happening even in those historically exclusively male domains. So although participation numbers have seen dramatic improvement for women and girls in sport here in the U.S. over the last five decades, um, Title IX went into effect in 1972. So in a couple of years, it's going to be five decades since that went into effect. So although we see those like a positive trend with participation numbers, the trend has been in the opposite direction for coaching roles. And, and this is an area that I'm particularly passionate about. Um, because I don't, and not probably a lot of people don't know, I worked, um, I was a full-time college throws coach on the division two level for four years and then, um, part-time for a few other years and I've coached youth sports as well. And so, although title nine provides legal protection for t participants, um, and provides legal protection so that underrepresented gender, the members of an, the underrepresented gender should have equal opportunity and also, um, comparable, like equal quality of the participation experience. So Title IX doesn't provide any protection for coaches. And as an aside, if this is something that you're interested in on digging into the data on college sports related to gender, um, I recommend that you check out the Equity in Athletics Data Analysis or EADA website. So any college 
for example, that receives federal funding is required to submit all these data points every year. And that data, going back to, I think, 2003, the raw data can be freely accessed through the EIDA website. And then they also have this user interface where you can pull up data for a specific year on a specific, on a single school or compare a couple schools. So going back to the talking about these numbers. So when I, I discuss this, these things that I'm so passionate about with people, they're often surprised to learn that since 1972, the rate of female coaches of women's college sports teams as a head coach, um, it's it, the percent of women's college sports teams that had a fe- have a female head coach have dropped from about 90% back in 1972. Um, and they've dropped dramatically and stagnated between 42 and 45% since 2001. So it dropped pretty steadily and then it's remained stagnant and there's been a little bit of variation, but it's been between that 42 and 45% um, level approximately. Um, And those that's overall for all women's um, college teams, but the numbers are even worse for individual sports like track and field, swimming, diving, golf, tennis. So those, those, the numbers there um, are closer to 20%. And Again, if you're interested in learning more about those stats, I highly recommend looking up Dr. Nicole Lavoie, the director director of the Tucker Center for Research on Women and Girls in Sport um, out of the University of Minnesota and her research on women in coaching. So sticking with the gender equity in sports leadership for a minute, um, we are seeing increasing evidence that diversity is good business sense. So businesses that are more diverse are more innovative and having diverse teams, although to be honest, it takes more work up front. Diverse teams tend to come up with better solutions to adaptive business problems. And it's just, it's straight up, it's good for business. So um, I do want to add one caveat about diversity though, like token diversity, like I referred to, as you saw on the football teams, there, um, the low numbers of female players. Token diversity isn't enough. So this week I watched the video of a TED talk about diversity and leadership um, where they did some research with businesses in Germany. And the speaker's research indicated that there is a tipping point on the impact of gender diversity and related to business business success. So below a certain point, the diversity didn't necessarily have an impact. But once businesses reach the tipping point of about 20%, of representation of women, that's where it started to make a difference. Like there needed to be a critical mass. So without that critical mass, I'd say members of whatever the underrepresented group is, um, without that, you're still going to see issues like stereotype threat and tokenism that are going to um, impede uh, the the efficacy of those efforts towards diversity and inclusion or, or, or reduce the, the positive impact on the business as a whole. So in short, representation matters beyond a point. Okay, so enough about that. So although you can probably tell I'm passionate about gender equity and sports leadership, I did I really did mostly want to talk today about um, things from an athlete's perspective and, and specifically in the Highland Games. So I think that what I've seen is that the more a sport embodies stereotypically masculine or male qualities, the more challenging it is for women to have equal opportunities in that sport, particularly in individual sport and in strength sports or events. So um, coming from a track world where, although I don't, I don't really know how the participation numbers are, I think women are still a little 
less well represented than men it it coming from that world where at least i knew i always was going to have the same opportunity as my male counterparts it was shocking to me when i started competing in the highland games to learn that there are still games where women do not have the same opportunities as men and i was i honestly it was incredibly disheartening and just it was just shocking when i learned that the New Hampshire games at Loon Mountain, for example, had only only just started including a women's class for the first time in 2019. And it was a very limited class at that. Like it's to me, that's that's stunning, you know. And although there are places and people where there is, you know, I see I see a lot of stuff that on the, the NASGA group on Facebook, like you can tell that in some places there's a conscious, intentional, visible effort towards gender equality it's clear there's still work to be done. And as, as flawed as the NASGA database was, I wanted to look up some numbers and there's some historical data there. So I went back because I just, I wanted to be able to go and see how the numbers of women in the sport, how, how they've changed over the last few years. And so you can go back and I pulled up numbers from um, 2009 up through 2019. And um, I didn't really filter through to remove duplicates. I just kind of took it the raw numbers as they were the total number of participants in all women. And I also compared that with um, all amateurs um, to try to find compare, you know, like apples to apples for men and women. So over that those 10 year, that 10 year period, the number of women with results in the database grew from 201 to 703. And that's about a 250% increase. And then I look at the, at the number of men's amateur athletes over the same period. And there was growth there as well. Um, an increase of, I think 200, um, from 1089 to 1289. And what is that percentage? It's about a 20% increase. I think a little bit less than 20%. And so the growth of the women's side is two and a half times the growth that we saw on the men's side. Um, and I mean, and it's a, a growth of we, the, the women's side added 300 more athletes than the men's side added. So I will add a caveat here that I didn't pull numbers for all of the men's classes. And so there may have been more overall growth in male Highland Games athletes, um, and, and that, you know, it, it would take a little more time and effort than I really want to put into it to be able to reliably combine all the classes and remove duplicates and whatnot. But um, so there may be some variation from those those numbers, but I think that that still illustrates a really dramatic growth on the women's side of the sport. And so, you know, thinking about how how we see the impact of diversity in business how it's a uh, good business. I wanted to, I was thinking about how for our sport, why, like why does it matter if we have more women in the sport? Um, and I think that it's, my take on it is that it's in the best interest of plenty of stakeholders in our sport to support and continue to foster the growth of women in heavy athletics. So the more people and hence the more women that start competing as amateurs, ultimately the more masters women we're going to have and more people total we're going to have in the sport the greater the pool is going to be of elite women, like the the high end of performance is likely going to increase. Um, the more money there will be for businesses that are related to the sport, that supply apparel, supplies, implements, the, the money for vendors at the games, entry fees for people coming to watch the games, athlete and training groups, um, you know, opportunities for people that provide coaching specific to the Highland Games. Like there's still a lot of upside for the women's side and growth there 
is going to support the overall like quote unquote industry that exists around the Highland Games. Um, and what that means, though, I think, you know, I, I think we're going to continue to see growth, whether things change or not. But I think that it's it's right. And we're going to see women stay in the sport, stay longer if they are valued as much as the men in the sport are valued. And some places are already there, but there are a lot of places where that's not the case. So how women in the sport are valued is communicated in myriad ways. How women, period, are valued. But I thought about some ways specifically that I've been able to pick up on how we might be treated differently. So some things that I see are the the number and types of classes offered, the availability and quality of implements, the type and number of awards, qualification and invitation process or selection, the amount of prize money and travel money, scheduling, event order, media coverage, announcing. I mean, there are a lot of different things where, you know, if two groups are not seen to have the same value they're not the way that they're treated are not going to be the same it's going to reflect how those the different groups are valued so now I do want to say that you know when you come from nothing to something like women in the Highland Games have come that you know it's something to be celebrated when you have something like the first the first matter like the first women to compete at loon that matters but if things stop after a first and there's no second or even if things stop short of equal that's going to be disappointing um so i i'm i'm glad that there's been growth on the women's side of the sport and it's been exciting to see how some groups are really explicitly making efforts to provide equal opportunities and experiences for male and female heavy athletes but to be honest, the way some people and groups in our sport treat men and women differently has really turned me off. Um, it's, you know, unless I see some changes reflected in the way that um, men and women are, are treated, um, spoken about, I, there, there are certain games I'm not going to, I'm going to choose not to go to, and I'm not going to spend my money there. I'm not going to provide added exposure, you know, like there, and I, I know I don't really matter. Like I'm just one thrower and the sport's going to continue with or without me. Um, but, uh, seeing how this all, seeing how certain things have played out recently has actually really helped me realize why I love this sport, what I want to focus on and how I'm going to continue to approach it as I, I age. But going back to talking about treating, showing equal respect for men and women in the sport and, and how our actions reflect, how much we value people. I I think you can tell whether women are truly respected and seen as equals by men, by the attitudes that are displayed towards them and the way that they're treated. So if you want to learn more about there's, there's research specifically on this, which I think is really interesting and I'm going to touch on for just a minute. Um, So if you want to learn more about this, you can look up stereotype content model and bias mapping. And I, I've put a, a link in the show notes. You can check that out. Um, So this model, the stereotype content model, in summary, indicates that our attitudes and behaviors towards members of other groups or members of groups um, is based on how we view them on two scales, on kind of two dimensions, warmth and competence. So basically assessing whether someone intends to help or harm us, that's their warmth, and then their ability to act on that intention, competence. um, Those are those are the two dimensions. So how we relate to someone um, how we assess them to fall on those two spectrums predicts can be is is a very predictable 
our, our attitudes and behaviors towards them are very predictable based on how we kind of categorize them or classify them. So I don't want to get more into the weeds on this, but I'll say that learning more about this model has helped me better understand certain people's behavior towards me, especially in the sport world, and helped me understand why someone could maybe seem sexist, but their actions not be totally harmful to me, why maybe it's, they, they might sometimes seem to help me and sometimes seem to hurt me. So anyway, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to get too deep into that. But in short, when I observe an attitude of admiration towards women in the heavy athletics, you know, and, and I see that in, in certain places and from certain people that I just talk about, like, how great the elite women are and how much value women bring and and the the effort that some people have put in to truly treat women in our sport equitably um and and i i want to be clear i'm not talking about how some women are treated as exceptions or individuals i mean women as a group like the the way that they're treated reflects the underlying belief that women as a group are competent um, that they're viewed as part of the larger in-group of heavy athletes and not as much as in other. But what I've unfortunately observed in the heavy athletics, though, including over the past week, um, is an attitude of contempt and even resentment towards women in the heavy athletics. So when I see that type of attitude reflected, to me, that's a strong indication that that person or that group still sees women in our sport as outsiders as interlopers, like we're trying to take something away from the sport or from men in the sport as if we're not true peers. Like we don't also deserve, you know, just equal treatment. So if we were truly seen as peers, as having as much value as the men in the sport, as an equal part of the Highland Games family, we would have the same opportunities and receive equitable treatment. Our thoughts and opinions would be valued just the same as our our male counterparts. And so you know, maybe you're going through all this and you're thinking, okay, so I want to, I want to make a difference. Like I want my games to be equitable. Like how, how do I figure out, or, or maybe you're an athlete and saying, okay, so how can I tell if a games, if the people who are running a games really do value men and women, um, equally. So if you want to assess that, you know, you can go back to that list that I talked about earlier of the different things you can look at. So, I put together a list of questions that I'll run through that's, you know, you can use as a starting point. So here are some questions you can ask, you know, looking at an event or an organization and see, well, really specifically a Highland Games and, and help you assess whether they might truly value women the same as they do their, their male athletes. So are the same number and type of classes offered for both men and women? Are the quality and quantity of implements equally provided for men and women including appropriate weights for each class and masters, lightweight, or junior athletes. Are the same type of awards, including any special awards, available and awarded equally to men and women? Are prizes, including money, awarded equally to men and women? Are any other incentives or perks, such as travel money or swag, distributed equally to men and women? Do men and women go through the same invitation, qualification, application, or selection process? Do men and women get treated fairly regarding scheduling and what days and how much attention, how much, how many fans might be there? Do men and women have equal opportunity to throw in traditional order? Do men and women get comparable media coverage um, or even, you know, coverage in the media guide? Do men and women get to participate equally in showcase or challenge events? 
does the event MC spend comparable time announcing on the, as they're announcing for both the men and women? And do they use comparably like comparable language, respectful language? Does the, and does the event MC hype up the performances of both the men and the women in the event equally? So, you know, after running through those questions, I'd like to wrap this up by coming around, coming back around full circle to this being girls and women in sports day. So, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I have I've had I've thought a lot about whether I wanted to say something and I've had mixed feelings and I wish I could just be all like kumbaya, everything's great, but I don't really feel that way about our sport as a whole or about sports as a whole. So it's clear that although there have been a lot of advancements when it comes to gender equity in sports, um it's it's to me it's still really crystal clear that we have a way to go. And and men if you're listening, like, here's where I'm talking to you. And in short, we need you as allies. So as long as women are not treated as equals, if we don't have the power to affect the kind of change we need to see to achieve gender equity, we we need you. We need more than silent supporters. We need you to stand up for us and, and you know, take a risk of, of putting yourself out there. And, and together, I think all together, I believe that we can help sustain and grow our sport for the next generation, for our sons and our daughters.